0: Is Parkinson's disease and football connected? Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about it. you. My name is Connor Collins and welcome to the Comcast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 139. And so the other day, I saw this article come across the internet. This article was posted August 12th. This is from Global News here in Canada. Playing football may increase risk of Parkinson's disease in men's study finds. So this was, I guess, August the 12th was World Parkinson's Day. So they posted this article kind of as a, an educational tidbit on World Parkinson's Day. And uh, within the article, they cite a recently published study in the uh, JAMA Network Open Journal that was sponsored by Michael J. Fox's Foundation for Parkinson's Research. It cites a couple of other studies in this article as well. And uh, it then goes on to say that uh, playing football may increase the risk of Parkinson's. So what I thought for today's episode would be, I've done this with respect to other studies that have come out. So I thought I would look at this study and try to come up with some summaries as to conclusions or not conclusions that can be drawn from this study. So I'll link the article below in the show notes. I'll link this study that we're talking about. I'll also link the study that is referenced within the article, the other study by Gardner that I just had a brief look at at the end, and we'll talk about that maybe closer to the end of the episode so I think before we get into you know potential connections or non connections with football, I'm just doing a brief summary of what Parkinson's disease is. Um, Parkinson's disease is a brain disorder disease, and it's essentially resulting in uncoordinated movement, shaking, stiffness, writhing, trouble with balance, along with other systemic side effects as well. The most prominent signs in the brain that go on when Parkinson's disease is present is that nerve cells or neurons within the basal ganglia die. And one of the primary roles of these nerve cells is to produce dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter responsible for a variety of processes in the body. You know, it's discussed most notably for the kind of motivation, things that we do in seeking motivation. Um, dopamine is also very closely linked to things like addiction. Now, as well as cells dying within the basal ganglia that produce dopamine, there's also cells that are lost that produce neurotransmitters and norepinephrine. And this might, or is thought to be one of the reasons why people with Parkinson's disease also have sort of systemic based symptoms. So norepinephrine is used to help regulate our gastrointestinal tract, our blood pressure, for example. There seems to be some discussion in Parkinson's disease around predisposition, genetic predisposition, and overall, the symptom spectrum is quite broad. There currently isn't a a diagnostic test to formally diagnose Parkinson's. A lot of it is a health thorough health history and a physical exam, neurological exam. That leads to the diagnosis. So it's kind of a clinical presentation. You end up seeing your typically your family doctor first and then maybe going on to see a specialist that formally diagnoses you through health history and physical exam. When we look at football, one of the very common topics, and I've discussed this at length on other shows, is not only concussion but something called repetitive head impacts. And repetitive head head impacts are Exposure to repeated hits or blows or impacts to the head, most commonly in the context of sport. And these are lower grade hits to the head that don't cause a concussion. And the really interesting thing about these or the thing that's discussed often is, are these low grade hits to the head with longer term exposure related to brain injuries or the likelihood of brain injuries further down the line. Most notably in the discussion is cumulative traumatic encephalopathy or CTE and I've done a few other episodes on CTE which I'll link below as well. In terms of research on Parkinson's disease and football or Parkinson's disease and repetitive head impacts, the reality is is the research is pretty scarce in this field. There is some discussion around repetitive head impacts some other studies and the development of what's called a Lewy body pathology. Lewy body pathologies are abnormal clumping of a protein called alpha-synuclein. And the clumping together of these proteins contributes to something known as Lewy body dementia, which is one of the most common types of progressive dementia that can happen As a standalone diagnosis, or it can happen within Parkinson's disease as well. The disease itself is about five to eight years from the time of diagnosis to death. Now, Lewy bodies also accumulate due to a loss of these neurotransmitters that we talked about earlier dopamine and acetylcholine. Like I said, you can have Lewy body dementia as a part of your Parkinson's diagnosis or as a standalone diagnosis outside of. Parkinson's disease. So as I said, this study was funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation and this is a sample pulled from that study. So in this sort of longitudinal, uh, what's called a cross-sectional study, is there are about 50,000 people participating in it currently. And really what the study is around is trying to gather information around Parkinson's disease. There are a number of different questions that are asked. So this study is a questionnaire based study where participants were asked to check in quarterly. So kind of once every three months and answer a series of questions. And from those series of questions, some of the data on football was pulled. One of the first questions that they're asked when they open up the survey is do you currently have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease by a healthcare practitioner? And again, this is answered by the person. There's no um, requirement for the submission of documentation or the submission of a formal diagnosis. So a lot of the demographics within the the study are also self-reported. Things like the presence of other healthcare diseases, height, weight, etc. So of the 50,000 people, 7,367 participants, or the sample size of that, was pulled initially. And then what they wanted to do is then parse that out and look at people that participated in sport. One of the questions that was asked in the survey was, have you participated in, in organized sports during the course of your life? And so of that... 4,015 participants answered yes to that question, but that was then further reduced to the sample size of 1,875 people just due to a lack of data in those other, you know, 2,200 individuals. The other thing about this study is that men form the totality of the study because of the 1,875 people used, there were only 10 female respondents that played any type of football. And so that would have skewed their data and so this is a male-focused study. So they were able to use 1,875 people that said they participated in organized sport and had adequate data to analyze. Now, if they answered yes to that question, which these individuals did, they were then asked a follow-up question. Did they play organized football? And the study was focused around football, because there is some existing evidence within the sport of football about repetitive head impacts and potentially long-term consequences. And there's a little bit more consistency in football across positions and level of play. So from this data, the researchers then assess things like highest level of play and time at each level of play. So the three levels of play that were analyzed were high school football, college football, and then professional football. There was also a comparison group and the comparison group were athletes that played a sport other than football. So the most common sports that were used were was soccer, hockey, and amateur wrestling. So while some of those sports can be considered Uh, contact sports. They were used to really just try and parse out football and look at football as a standalone sport and its influence potentially on Parkinson's disease. So if we look at the results of this study in general, I just want to talk about some of the higher level demographic summary of the group. The average age of individuals in this sample size was 68 years of age. The vast majority were of Caucasian ethnicity at 98%. And of the 1,875 people used, 85.4% had expressed that they had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. When the football group was parsed out, there were 729 individuals of the group of 1,875. The vast majority of these people played football up until high school, 82%. Some played college at 17%, and less than 1% played professional football in the NFL. Now, the conclusion that the researchers came to was that there is a higher, what's called an odds ratio. An odds ratio is really anything measuring above one when you're doing this statistical analysis means that exposure to something is associated or great, more greatly associated with a particular outcome. So in this circumstance... Football, longer years played, higher level played is associated statistically with a greater chance of a Parkinson's disease diagnosis. And so, as a result of that, the conclusion then statistically is made that there is a link between Parkinson's disease and playing football. So, that's kind of a general overview. Um, what I want to do is now look at the sample sizes drawn out and compare some of the other data that was not reported in this study as part of the title, other data that maybe wasn't reported in the article. Because what this, this happens a lot in, in cross-sectional studies where you know what you're looking for and then you pull data to satisfy what you're looking for rather than perform a research study for example and then see what the data says and then make your conclusions after the fact rather than going in with a conclusion and then pulling data to satisfy that conclusion. And we know that this is a critique of a lot of concussion research. And so while I talk about when things are important to to recognize I think it's also important to recognize some of the other associated data here that may be related to some of the findings that wasn't really, you know, reported in the title or reported in some of the news outlet articles. So if we look at this group of the group as a whole, the 1875 people that played football or contact sports, rather not football, those that reported a Parkinson's disease diagnosis in this group were about five years older. 68 to 63. The Parkinson's diagnosis group had a little bit less heart disease, but it was 0.9%, so we could probably call it equal. They had a 1.7 increase in diabetes diagnosis. They had a lower level of education. They had a slightly lower BMI or body mass index, which is the ratio of height to weight, but again, very similar. And oddly enough, they had a less likely family history of Parkinson's diagnosis, which was significant. Twenty eight point five percent of people that had a Parkinson's diagnosis had a family history compared with the people that didn't have a Parkinson's diagnosis, they had a family history of fifty-eight percent. The other thing that was asked was about history of brain injury where they lost consciousness. And that was equal in both groups, around thirty three percent or a third of people. So then what was done was the football-specific sample was pulled out of that 1,875 people. So that 729 people were then looked at. And when you look at the ages of those individuals, the ages now are closer together. So 68 and 67. Virtually we're looking at the same age of people in the sample size. That's just how it kind of parsed out. And that's probably better because in the general sample size you can make You know you can look at the age and go well Parkinson's diagnosis five years later in age well maybe it's just because people are getting older. So in the football sample size first what they were able to kind of do is close the gap between ages 68 and 67. One of the things that appears initially is that there's a 5.7 percent increase in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in the football group. Now what I said about the group as a whole or the pulling and looking at the data of the whole group initially was there wasn't really a a distinct significance in in heart disease so there was about a 0.9 percent difference in in heart disease people diagnosed versus not diagnosed now in the football sample size there was a large difference in heart disease Uh, people with the Parkinson's diagnosis had a 5.2% increased rate of heart disease. Again, the total increase in, in Parkinson's diagnosis was 5.7%. I think why this statistic might be important is we know that there's something called vascular Parkinsonism. And vascular Parkinsonism is the presence of a lot of Parkinsonian-type symptoms due to cerebrovascular disease, most prominently what's called a multifocal stroke, meaning a stroke in varying areas of the brain. People exhibit a lot of the similar symptoms to Parkinson's, but they don't have the degradation of cells in the basal ganglia. They don't have a drop in dopamine, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, but they have a lot of the writhing movements, shuffling gait, etc. We also see a 2.1% increase in diabetes in the diagnosed group versus undiagnosed group here. We see pretty much the same BMI. We see pretty much the same family history now. And we see an 8% higher experience of a concussion or a traumatic brain injury where there was a loss of consciousness. So for me, when I look at these statistics, you know, the thing that jumps out at me isn't really the, the football. You know, we have a 5.7% increase in Parkinson's disease diagnosis in people that have played football as a part of their life. But in that group, we also have a 5.2% increase in heart disease. And that isn't mentioned in the title. You know, the link between heart disease and the development of Parkinson's like I said, there's plenty more research on vascular Parkinsonism than there is between, you know, the link between football and Parkinson's disease currently. Like I said, vascular Parkinsonism is a well-known sort of working diagnosis for people that are experiencing those symptoms. We also know that there isn't a true diagnostic test for Parkinson's disease. So our people that are experiencing vascular parkinsonism due to heart disease are they maybe falling through the cracks again because a lot of these diagnoses are self-reported in this study we don't really know so really when we look at this study this this study in particular there are several limitations to it the first is it's a convenient sample size Um, we know that the majority of people that were taking this survey are already concerned about parkinson's disease or they have someone in their family with it or they are experiencing symptoms we also know that the sample in terms of demographic is 98 percent caucasian individuals we also know that the sample size used in the football group was all males and We know that the nature of the study has bias towards it, sample bias, in that we're going in trying to answer a question, and then we're pulling data to find the answer, rather than asking a question and letting the data bring about a conclusion. I think those are probably the largest limitations in the study. What I just did before I came on to shoot this episode was I I reread that Global News article and it cites this other study, this study by Gardner in 2018 that was linking, uh, this was a a larger study linking um, veterans with a history of traumatic brain injury to Parkinson's disease. And it was, again, a similar style of study. So I just very quickly kind of looked at some of their data again and uh, in the same group as those individuals that had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease um, but had suffered a traumatic brain injury, there was also an increased uh, diagnosis of diabetes by 4%, increased uh, diagnosis of high blood pressure by 4.3%, um, 2% higher incidence of heart attack, 7.2 higher incidence of stroke, 2.7 higher incidence of congestive heart failure, 12% increase in mood disorder diagnosis, 6% in anxiety disorder diagnosis, and 5% more in post traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. And again, I think that study is titled The Link Between Traumatic Brain Injury and Parkinson's Disease that was done in 2018. I'll link that below. One of the takeaways here, and I think that reading research is interesting. However, sometimes when these studies get circulated in the news, and even the titles of the studies can be often misleading because they're attempting to, again, go in and they've got a foregone conclusion before they start sampling the data. I'm not really sure in this circumstance whether I'll be, you know, citing this in my teaching or talking about it with individuals there still remains a lot of questions around the links between even repetitive head impacts and CTE that seems that link seems to be becoming a little bit closer however as a result of that I think people are now looking at all central nervous system disorders and seeing whether or not there may be a link with contact sports over a period of time if I look at this data and try to interpret it myself, it appears like individuals with Parkinson's disease in these groups, while they might also have experienced a history of football, at the current time of their diagnosis, they're also experiencing other things in their health profile, leading them down a line of a little bit of a poor health profile, particularly as it relates to their cardiovascular system presence of heart disease as well as presence of diabetes we know that maintenance of an overall health profile particular of the cardiovascular system and diabetes is important for all health markers disease and overall longevity now it's unfortunate that while this data is available within the study it wasn't you know really a talking point because that wasn't the goal of the study So I think for me in terms of, uh, as I said, is this really going to change the conversation around football and Parkinson's? For me, it's not. But again, I appreciate the studies and I appreciate the opportunity to read them and look at them in a little bit more depth. And I hope that if you choose to read them yourself, you have an opportunity to look at them in a little bit more depth as well. If you're a consumer of um, research as it circulates within the news, if you can, a lot of these studies are linked within the the body of the articles, and you're then able to go in and and read them. And sometimes if you don't have a, a background in the particular topic, it can be a little bit daunting. However, you know, maybe reach out to family doctors, other health professionals about maybe the context of the discussion around the particular research relating to a topic because for a lot of people when I see people in the clinic especially young people that have maybe googled their symptoms as it relates to concussion a lot of people come in quite scared not necessarily about in this circumstance saying that oh I'm going to get Parkinson's disease but a lot of people are scared about the long-term consequences of concussion or you know repetitive concussions over time I think that we need to take this topic seriously. But if someone comes in, am I going to am I going to start listing all these things and say, well, I just read a study that, you know, you're going to be at increased risk for Parkinson's. I don't really think that would be a responsible thing for me to do. So, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with this research. My question for you this week is if you have you read these studies? Again, I'll link both studies cited in the article. I'll link the article itself and I'll I'll link the other episodes that i've done on cte for you to have a listen Um, as always i hope that you found this episode to be of value to you enjoy your weekend and we will see you in the next one